All right, good morning, everybody. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews 4. Just a reminder, we do have those tickets for the art event coming up uh, at the end of September. Um, We have a family pack also they've added to it, six kids, two adults for 100 bucks. So if you're interested in supporting the source and you want to see an Pretty cool event, I think. Um, um, You can get some tickets after the service here if you're interested. Um, We'll be selling them all month, but um, just so you know, they're available for you. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, three different subjects. The first one is the rest that we're to enter into in Jesus Christ. The second is the Word of God and how it cuts between the soul and the spirit. And the third is the compassionate high priest that we have in Jesus. See, they didn't always equate high priest and compassion. It wasn't always the mix for the Israelis. They understood who the high priest was and what he did, and that's important. No matter what kind of personality he had, or no matter what kind of representation he was of God, they knew his role. They knew what he did. They'd bring the lamb, and he'd do the work. They'd wait. And he'd come out and say, forgiven, and they could go home. And that's the idea behind the high priest. But that was all it was, generally, for them, was a business transaction. He'd see person after person, and it is hard, after a while, to have that constant compassion for the next person in front of you with the same problem. It's hard not to say, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, as a man or as a woman. But the writer here of Hebrews wants them to understand, no, you have a different high priest now who's eager to hear you and knows you, knows the numbers of hairs on your head, knows you personally, knows your thoughts that nobody else knows, knows your heart better than anybody. And when you come to him, he's the high priest you want to talk to. He has new compassion for you every time he sees you. And it's beautiful. And so the writer here is trying to show them, again, in chapter 4, building upon the first three chapters of how much better it is with Jesus. The problem was with the Hebrews, they began to fall back into the old habits of the Old Testament, the old covenants, trying to blend the two together, and it didn't work. And so the writer here is trying to say, you're fine in the new covenant. You're fine with the new contract. So he begins in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. The concern was you've Come all the way to the border, but you haven't crossed in. See, he's building upon something he's been talking about, this promise, this place of rest. God's used several examples of what this rest would be like, but it's always been a foreshadowing of the actual rest. The the first time would be the seven days of creation. It's actually six, the legalist will say to me. The seventh day he rested. Good, I'm glad you remember that part. Because that's the first time God tries to show us there's a rest. Even I'm going to take a rest. What that means is, not that I've come short of ideas, I'm just going to be done. It's complete. It's, it's, it's nothing more to be accomplished. I've finished the work. So on the seventh day, I rested. And that was our first clue. There's a rest for us. So the Sabbath day. And so every, day, every seventh day, every Saturday, they would take a rest. Everybody had to not do any work, and they had to sit there. They got it all messed up. Excuse me. It ended up being more work than the other six days. 
You know, everybody's spying each other's liberty out. How, how far did you walk today? Well, that's two paces too far. You know, it, it began to be this big complicated thing of how to fulfill this rest. And we can do that. When God tries to show us a beautiful picture and to give us a break and to let us know the burden's been lifted off of us, what do we do? We add more burden to it. What does it mean to not have a burden? You know? The second time he does it is when he takes the children of Israel up to the border of the promised land. That's supposed to be their rest in there. They're supposed to rest in him. Now, there's going to be a lot of work on the other side of the Jordan River. Well, we've gotten out of Egypt. We've gone through the the Red Sea, and we've wandered around the wilderness just for a little bit. Then we walked up to the border of the promised land, the Jordan River, and we're supposed to just cross based off of his word. We're supposed to beat all of our enemies over there and kick them all out based off of his word. In fact, the first place they go into when they actually get in 40 years later is Jericho, and all they had to do was walk around the city a couple times. More than that, but... And the walls came tumbling down. We sang that song in Sunday school. We teach our kids that. I don't know if they really understand what that means. See, the song in Sunday school is meant to teach them a principle. You don't have to work for salvation. You don't have to work to conquer your enemies. God does that for you. The work that we do is to believe on him. The fact that we truly believe is the action we take to walk around. See, it's one thing to hear God say, walk around Jericho and do it this many times and so many times, and you're going to blow the trumpet and the walls are going to fall down. We've all heard it, but until they start walking around and actually fulfill what he told them to do, there's no belief. Hearing isn't believing. Doing what you've heard is believing. And that's what the writer here is going to try to get across. So when he says this in verse 1, there since remains a place of rest for us, that means we didn't accomplish it when we have the seventh day. That's not our rest that he's talking about. And we did go into the promised land, and that didn't bring us the rest, because David writes, So I swore in my wrath, don't worry, I'll back up and finish that. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If David wrote that, that means there's still a rest that remains. And so that's where the writer's taking us, taking them. You've come short of it. You've come all the way to the border. You've actually heard, but have you gone in and entered that rest? For indeed, the gospel was preached to us, this is verse 2, as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, I so I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What the writer's trying to get across is God, God finished this work. God finished the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ way back then. When he said he finished from all of his works, In Genesis, that means he had finished the plan of Christ at that time also. This has always been in force. It's always been going to happen. So when God says, I rest on the seventh day, that means on the eighth day he didn't say, oh, I better come up with a plan for salvation. He's saying that was already done on the sixth day. We're done with salvation. Jesus has already, that plan's been ready to be enforced or enacted. The problem was, it wasn't being mixed with faith. They're all hearing the same word. They hear the gospel. These guys are telling everybody about Jesus. 
And some believed and some didn't. It's always a mixed crowd. It's always some will and some won't. It's never 100%. That's hard to get through my head a lot of times because I'd like, I, I think I explained it the same way I did last time. The last time someone got saved, when I told them about Jesus, I better remember how I said that because they got saved that time. And I think it has something to do with the way I worded it. And it doesn't. It has to do with them believing what I just said or what God said I said, you know, or vice versa. I said what God said. It has to do with their faith. It has to do with your faith, my faith. God has lots of things for us to do. He's got lots of plans for us. He's got lots of things laid out before us, good works to walk in in our life now that we've come to Christ, and it all has to be mixed with faith or we don't enter into any of those things ever. We might hit and miss a few times. Hey, I got that. That was great. Boy, I really felt the Holy Spirit moving through me. That was so great. I felt such... Oh. Then the next time we blow it, we forget it, we miss it, because we didn't mix it with faith. The gospel is great. The gospel is true. The gospel never changes. But if it's not mixed with faith, they don't enter that rest. They don't believe. And so he's taking them step by step. Be careful. Why didn't all Israel get saved? Because they didn't mix it with faith. It needs to be mixed with faith. There has to be some doing. And so he finishes up there in that sentence of verse 5. They shall not enter my rest. In other words, it was completed and finished before the seventh day, before he rested, and now it's in force. Now, verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying to David, or saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said. In other words, it's not too late. If they were supposed to go into the promised land and they didn't, but some did, that doesn't mean they lost their chance and their opportunity because then David later on in the promised land said, if today they will enter that rest. In other words, it's not about the Jordan. It's not about those things. It's not about the Red Sea. It's, not, it's the fact that at one point you heard God and at one point you did what he said. And I've yet to do that, some might say. Today's the day you get to do it. I've heard the gospel so many times, but I've never really applied it to my life. I've never really accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's the faith part. You have to do that part. But the same promise that you heard the first time when you were 10 years old in class, mom and dad drug you to church, the guy told you the gospel, you listened, you said, yeah, 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 where's my fishy crackers, you know? And you didn't hear that time, and you didn't hear the next time, and you didn't hear the next time. But that doesn't mean time is over. Today, if you'll hear his voice, today's the day of salvation. At any time, God's word can be mixed with faith, and you can believe. As long as you're still breathing, there's opportunity to mix that word with faith. That's what he's saying. Paul says it better, but for me, i got to kind of break it down a little bit further for me. Paul's a little heady for me sometimes. I, sorry, the writer of Hebrews. We don't know if it's Paul or not. I just assume. So he says, it's still there. It's still waiting. Mix it with faith. For if Joshua, and you do understand that Jesus' name is not Jesus, we just call him that. His real name was Yeshua. Like if you're in Hebrew, and you'd see, if you were amongst the Hebrews, and you say, have anybody seen the rabbi Jesus? They'd all say, no, never heard of the guy. 
But if you said, I'm looking for Rabbi Yeshua, oh yeah, he's over there. He's over in the, he's out there with the other 5,000. They would know. So understand that. When they talk about Joshua, whose name is Yeshua in the Old Testament, taking them into the promised land, that's very symbolic that the Savior's name is Yeshua trying to take us into the promised land. Just filling you in there in case you hadn't connected the dots. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. The proof, that's the proof. The proof that you've actually mixed God's gospel with faith is that you've ceased from your works. That's why I harp on that so much. I get worried when works try to creep into the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do have to believe on Jesus for your salvation. That's true. But, and then they add something to it, whatever it may be. And I don't even want to name them because people get mad when I name them because it's personal to them and they've held dear and it's been taught to them from the, from the very point of birth they've been taught. It's believing on Christ and then doing this next thing, whatever that is. And it can't be that. The gospel cannot have anything added to it. It is a work of the Spirit inside of, the, inside of man. It has nothing to do with the external. It has nothing to do with the flesh, which does not go to heaven with us. Understand that. It has to be spirit. Let me break it down. The gospel has to be able to be received by the most in, incompetent, um, unmobile breathing human being. If you've got a a person in a vegetative state in the hospital, they can receive the gospel, even if they can't hear you, see you, or do anything, and they die in the very next breath after receiving it. You understand that? It has to be that way. It has to be spirit. If you say, that's great, oh, they got so close, they believed on Christ, but we never drug them to the lake, or we never did that one thing we were supposed to do to them. Oh, poor Bob. We're in error if we believe that. It can't be work. Believing is not work. Believing is something we receive the gift of God, but you can't add anything to it. And he warns us of that. Have you ceased from your works? James chapter 2, it's the next book we'll get into here. I think I might go back to the Old Testament after this so we can finish up, but... It'll, we'll eventually get into James. But James chapter 2 speaks of faith. This is the part where he says faith without works is dead. And he goes on and explains it to him. And we take that the wrong way. We actually take it from the legalist point of view a lot of times. We say, see, if you're not doing, you ain't saved. So you better start doing. And we get the idea, you're right, I'm not doing. I better start doing to get saved. And that's not, that's not it. All he was getting at was, if you are that, then you'll show that. But you can't show that to make you that. It's got to be something that comes from the fruit of that relationship. That's the proof that you're attached to the root, is that you have that fruit. And so he says over and over again, James chapter 2 is actually talking about what we're talking about here coming right up to the border, coming right up to the edge, hearing the word of God, but not mixing it with faith to the point we actually go through the Jordan. We actually walk into the land, trusting God. 
we collect Bible studies, we collect the gospel, we hear it over and over again, and yet we don't mix it with faith to the point where our body actually moves towards God. Do what he told us to do. And so he concludes in verse 26 of James chapter 2, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Never seen anybody in a coffin before? I'm not to bring up any bad memories of anybody, but it's weird. They're not the same person. doesn't matter how much makeup they put on them or how they fix their hair or whatever. You look at them and it's just kind of plasticky. It doesn't look right. They're not animated. They're not moving like they used to. They're not standing at the kitchen sink. They're not sitting in the chair. They're not talking like they used to. You look at them and it's just kind of, it's like you're at a wax museum a little bit. And I'm not trying to diminish it. It is just the body, though. Keep that in mind. I'm not really hurting anybody's feelings, I hope. That's what a Christian looks like when they're not filled with the Spirit. It's plasticky. It doesn't look right. I know you said you're with Jesus, and you kind of look like Him. You have a nose and eyes and a mouth and ears, and you resemble the person I used to know, but you're not animated. It's a big difference. See, when, when a little kid maybe goes up to the casket and says, I want my mommy back, it doesn't mean they just want to sit there and they're content with what they see in the casket. No, they want the animated, life-filled mom back. This world desperately needs to see Christians that aren't in word only, that don't have the appearance, but are animated by Christ, filled with His Holy Spirit, moving and walking acting like he acted. Oh, the world is longing to see someone that would do what he was doing while he was on earth. That's why he says it's to your advantage that I go away when he told the disciples that I might send the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to indwell you. He is going to come upon you and fill you with the power that I have. And everybody's going to be able to do what I do. And they're going to actually experience me in you. Now get out of the way, he'd say. When I show up as plastic Christian, people are just creeped out by it, to be honest with you. But when I'm filled with the Spirit, I've mixed His Word with faith, I've believed on Him, and all of a sudden I'm animated. All of a sudden I'm acting. My hands are doing the work of Christ. My feet are doing the work of Christ. My mouth is doing the work of Christ. I'm actually hearing people and seeing people the way He did. Everything's happening like it's supposed to, and the world is blessed. That person's blessed. Anybody in front of me is blessed. But when I'm not, when I don't mix it with faith, if I just have the Word of God, if I just have what He told me to do, and I'm trying to explain it to people, it's dead. It's lifeless. There's no power. So when James says faith without works is dead, he's right. You can say you have faith, but until you've walked like he's asked you to walk or done what he's asked you to do, you haven't mixed it with faith. You're not doing what he told you to do. The second section here is the Word, the Word of God. He's building upon this. So, okay, you've got this rest that you're supposed to enter into. How do I know? Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience meaning the folks standing at the edge of the Jordan River that looked at it and said, we can't go in, the, the land is filled with giants, we can't go across, they went the other way, and God had them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Don't be that Christian. 
I went through the Red Sea. I believed. I applied the blood to the doorposts of my life. I am out of Egypt, but I'm stuck in the wilderness, not having any victory over my sin, not having any victory over my enemies. And I'm standing at the Jordan, and God's saying, let me fill you with the Holy Spirit and come across with Jesus. Don't fall short. I wonder how many Christians are standing at the edge of the Jordan saying, I don't know. That Holy Spirit thing, they told me that I can't do it. They told me it wasn't for today. They told me that there aren't any gifts. Well, there are a few of them left, but not all of them anyway. I don't know where they came up with that. It's not in God's Word, but they've come to the conclusion they're not all for today. The Bible never says they ceased. But they do, because they've never experienced or because they don't believe. And so there's a lot of Christians standing at the edge of this Jordan saying, I don't know about this Holy Spirit thing. I don't know about that land over there. It's okay over here. We could settle over here, and they do. And they sit defeated. And the writer here is so worried that that's going to happen to us or to them. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Go to God's Word. God's Word's able to do that. We know from other scriptures that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's not my sword. It's not Calvary's sword. It's not any denomination's sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, and it works. It's alive. It's able to tell the difference between my emotional response and a spiritual response, the soul and the Spirit. I can be sincere and weep and cry at an event but that was soulish. The Word of God says, no, 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 I never prescribed that as the way to worship me. I don't care how emotional you felt during that experience. Oh, you've just got to try this. I know it's not in the Bible. I know that it's not something you've ever had at your church, but oh, it's, it's so, oh, I just felt so alive. But the Word of God tells me that that's not scriptural. It says it's not biblical. So what you felt may have felt real, but it's feelings. It's not of the Spirit. So I've had both of those moments. I've had experiences, I think we all have, of where I've weeped or cried or felt emotional about an event. I, I was watching Little House on the Prairie last night with my daughters. I got all weepy when Laura got up there and gave her dissertation about her maw. Oh, that's so loving. Look away from me. Look away, kids, you know. That wasn't spirit, though. That was my soul. And it's okay. I felt touched. But I'm not going to worship Little House in the Prairie now. I've never felt such an emotional rust, you know, putting candles around the TV and turning on episode three. You know, no, I'm not going to do that because it was just the thing. I know the difference. But boy, I've been moved by the Holy Spirit too. Sometimes I have to, I'll be worshiping God in the car. This is, you know, periodically. You think texting and driving is bad. Try worshiping God filled with the Spirit and driving. That's even worse. You've got to pull over. You want to get out of your car, and if you're on a, des- on a dry, you know, dusty road, you can. You can get out there and say, God, you are, you're scream at the top of your lungs. Woo, you're awesome. It's not soul. That's a work of the Spirit. Just this brokenness, this amazing experience you had with God. That's the Spirit. And that's biblical. I can read and say, yeah, David did that danced with all of his heart before the Lord and said, I will be even more undignified than this. And he was a pretty cool warrior. 
The Word of God is able to show us the difference between what's soulish and what's spirit. And so we go to the Word of God. It's also meant to show us the difference between true worship and the living God versus all the false gods and false worship that's out there. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, I can throw it out. Ick is a discerner. It shows my heart, my thoughts, my intents. I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your intents. I don't know your heart. But God does, and His Word does. And when you read for yourself, as you go through God's Word, He'll show it to you too. I kind of did that with selfish motivation, you might read. Or you might be encouraged. Hey, I just did that. And I didn't even know I was supposed to do that. But I did it naturally. I must be filled with the Spirit. A little encouraging time, you know. That happens. But that's what the Word of God's for. Enter that rest. Trust that you've been saved through Jesus Christ. It's funny to say it that way, but that's really what it means. Trust and believe that you've really been saved by Jesus Christ. That's entering that rest. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I'm very glad of that. I'm glad there's nothing I can hide from God. I'm glad he's always looking past the facade, the veneer, the mask. So when I come to God, I say, God, I did this really awesome thing yesterday. Already he's convicting me saying, was it that awesome? Should I clap or stand for you, J.D.? He doesn't really say that, but that's the sense I get when I'm standing there telling him all the great and more glorious works I've done for him this week, you know? Really? Well, yeah. I guess they're all dung, aren't they? Because I did them for myself and for recognition, not for you kind of thing. Well, you could just be nice to people because I love you, you know? So his word of God does that for me. My quiet times aren't always a beat down, you know, and they shouldn't be. Oh, I'm going to open God's word. You know, you don't have to cringe. You should be able to read God's word and actually be encouraged. And as you walk closer with God, it'll happen, and it does. Hopefully you've all experienced that. You read and say, I didn't even know that was in there. I never read that before, and I'm already doing it. You ever have those moments? I have those moments. I'm like, hey, that's a really godly thing to do, and I already did that. Now, I'm trying not to mix pride with my faith at that point. But it's nice to know that the Spirit of God showed me to do that and fruit came out without me having to have a list in front of me. Things to do today for God, you know? Check one, smile at my wife. Check two, you know? All of a sudden, I'm kind to my wife. Maybe I'll rub her shoulders or something like that. Good morning, how are you, honey? Morning. You know, it's fruit. It's coming out of me. Now the third thing for today. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest. So he's moved. He's moving us. Okay, first you have to mix his word with faith. Then you, but you've you got to have the word, and you get that word, and it shows you. And then, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Love that. I mean, I use that almost in every other sermon, this section of Scripture. This is one of those sections, verses 14 here through 16, that kind of tie some things together for the person who's been reading the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, what's his role, what's it mean for the sacrifices. This kind of ties it together. It's important. 
seeing then that we have a great high priest, like the ones we've read in the past, to the Jews like they've experienced in the past. But he's passed all the way through the heavens, not just through that curtain. It's bigger. It's, it's better. Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Hold to that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived our lives. He went through the teasing, even from his brothers and sisters. Younger brothers and sisters at that. They were all younger than him. He went through the beatdowns. He went through all the, the misunderstandings. The, even his mom at times. What, is, what, what do I have to do with you this, today with that wine thing? What are, you, what are you talking about? It's not my time yet, but he did it. But without sin. I have a high priest who doesn't look at me and say, really, another lamb? Didn't you just bring me two last week? Haven't you learned your lesson? I mean, what, when are you going to get this? You know, there's no beat down like they probably experienced at the temple before. When they come to the high priest, the high priest says, I am so tired of slaughtering lambs. I am so tired of your sin. You know what? I'm just not coming to work today, you know? I could imagine those guys had those days because they're just men. But the writer here says, no, we've got a much better high priest now, one that sympathizes with our weakness, doesn't beat us down because we've sinned again in the same area, but sympathizes with our weakness. I know you're weak. I know you're a man. I know you're stuck in that flesh. I know you continually do those things. I know you, and I know you hate it. I think that's the biggest part for me is to remember that God also knows that I hate it, that I don't want to do the things I don't want to do, you know, but I do. And then the things I want to do, I don't do. I hate that too. And he sympathizes with me. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't say that's fine. Live that way the rest of your life. Don't give it a second thought. But I don't have condemnation coming from his eyes. I have sympathy coming from his eyes. When that prodigal son's father is scanning the horizon at home, waiting for the son to return, not going out and looking for him, but waiting, and he sees his son coming, his son rehearsing this speech, what am I going to tell dad as I'm coming back from living a life of worldliness? Before he can get the words out of his mouth, his dad's already wrapped his arms around him, he's already put the robe on him, he's got the ring on him telling him to kill the fatted calf. And everybody else along the road, even the brother behind dad, is wondering what in the world's going on? Doesn't he even get a lecture? I mean, aren't you even going to put him, I don't know, like a slave for a while to make sure he learned his lesson? None of that. That's our God. That's the only God of the world that feels that way about the people. And I know there's not other gods, but you understand what I'm saying. All the other religions have a God that does what we would do. We would beat them down. We would bring them low. We would make sure they've learned their lesson. We want them to suffer. But our God, on the other hand, seeing us coming across, realizing it's already happened. He's already repented. The fact that he's coming back to me is proof that he's turned from his sin, he's facing his Father, and he's walking in the right direction. I don't need to say anything. We have a compassionate high priest. 
And I need to reflect that compassionate high priest to those around me, with my kids, with myself even. And I'm not falling into that. You've got to forgive yourself before you can forgive anybody else. No, no, no. You need to forgive other people, regardless of whether you forgive yourself or not. It's not you first. Satan wants us to think that. Got to love yourself first. No, you don't. You love yourself plenty. Just love other people. If you start loving other people, you'll start loving yourself. You will. You'll start liking the person that you are because you're not the person you used to be. I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'm long-suffering, patient, joyful. I like me. I'm nice to be around now, you know, instead of waking up saying, oh, man, still me. Change, be like Christ, and then you'll want to be around yourself too. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. Now let me finish here in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wonderful. He doesn't want us to come sheepishly. He doesn't tell us to come grovel. We don't have to come on our knees. We don't have to crawl the last hundred yards like you do in other groups. God isn't pleased with me walking around on my knees saying the same repetitious prayer around some statue. That doesn't please him. Never asked us to do that. That's been something man does to themselves. They think it makes us more uh, pious, humble, approachable by God, I guess. I don't know what the thought is behind that, but it's contrary to Scripture. It's the division between the soul and the spirit. I feel better if I've worn holes on my knees and I'm bleeding by the time I come for my actual prayer. I want to crawl up the stairs on my knees. I want to go around this statue 17,000 times. More than anybody ever else has. Look at me. When God's word says something completely different, we walk up to him boldly to the throne of grace. No one walks up to the throne of grace boldly. Not back then but we can with Christ Jesus. We can with our Savior. Because we've been forgiven, because there's mercy, because there's grace ready for us in time of need. When do we need it? When we've sinned. When we've fallen short, when we didn't do what we were supposed to do. I boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy and say, Dad, I don't know what else to say. I said it yesterday. He says, I know. And there's compassion. There's eyes of grace, mercy, and it's ready for us and it's available for us. I love that. And the writer loves that. And he wants the Hebrews to love that. And he wants us reading about the Hebrews to love that. It's the best part about Christianity. Compassionate high priest who understands our weakness and sympathizes. And we cannot, we cannot exhaust his grace and his mercy. It's, it's like trying to drain the ocean with a spoon. Good luck with that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Because it's your word that tells us who you are. Your word is God breathed. You breathed it. This is your heart. You want us to know this stuff. You want us to believe this to the point where we actually do it. Now, we've heard today how gracious you are, how merciful you are, how approachable you are, how compassionate you are, how available to us you are. Now, as we mix your word with faith, help us to do that then. Help us to walk in faith, filled with the Spirit, trusting that we really are saved by your Son, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And that we really can tell other people with that confidence 
that they can be saved, really saved, by what your son did on the cross for them as well. That they can enter into that promised land. That we can cross this Jordan filled with your spirit and have to actually have victory and conquer our enemies in your strength, not in ours. Not in our diligence or discipline, but by your power. Just obeying you. Each step of the way, whether that's to walk around Jericho, whether that's to boldly come into another city, whether that's to hold off and divide and keep some of our forces back while they run out after us and we can come in and take their city when they're not looking. However the strategy is, God, as you give it to us in our life to conquer our enemies, God, help us to follow it. And we'll have victory every time. So we thank you for you, what you've done, for your son Jesus, and for your Holy Spirit. Bless these guys as they go today, Lord. Help them have victory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.